0: Amen. Well, good afternoon. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Aaron and I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at the trails. And it's wonderful to be gathering together with you, uh, especially today as it is our one year anniversary uh, as a church. And uh, I, was, I was thinking about this past year, what a, what a crazy year uh, it has been. And all God's people said, amen, because it's been nuts. Um, and I, I was thinking about that as I, uh, I saw some of the Instagram stories that Nino had been doing over the last couple of days. Um, and, uh, and as you know, if you've been following along, some of that, we, we have been gathering together longer than just this past year. But it was a year ago, about this time, uh, where we held our very first public uh Gathering together like this as a church, uh, and have been uh, doing so uh, every week, uh, and so uh, we're, we're we're thankful for that, and we pray that that would continue to uh, happen, come what may. And so, uh, anyway, today we wanted to uh, remember and to celebrate God's faithfulness with with a little party and some things for our kids. We have a a, a bouncy uh, castle. It's not castle. It's like a uh, a. Uh, obstacle course, that's what it is, uh, and we have some of that, and, and then uh, a lot of you brought uh, some food to, to share. If you didn't bring any food, and you're like, I didn't bring anything, well, we don't care. You can say, you can eat some food uh, and have some coffee. It's like God's grace. It's just free for you, so come to the table, eat. Uh, other people brought lots of food so that you can have some. So uh, anyway, so that, that'll be after uh, our gathering today, but, but, I, but in this whole season, what we really just want to do is just pause and really thank God. We, we know and believe as a church that, that God is the only one who can plant or start churches, <laughs> that's only something he can do. Oh, we also know and believe the church, only God is the one who can save us. We, we can't do enough good religious deeds. We can't do enough great moral things to make God look at us and say, hey, I want that person on my team. No, God must save us. And we, we believe that God is the only one who could have, praise God, persevered us in this last 19 months as a church. Only the Lord could do that. And so whether you're here for the first time, invited by a friend or a family member, maybe found us on social media, whether you're a Christian or simply someone who's kicking the tires on Christianity, if if it's one of your first times gathering with us, we're we're thankful that you are here. Uh, And uh, and, and if you uh, call this place your church home, if you're some of the men and women that uh, have partnered with, with us in the gospel and are committed to using your gifts and talents to help us make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples as we have this huge, crazy uh, idea of wanting to help plant lots of healthy churches all across Manitoba, then, then we're, we're thankful that you're here as well. It's been a joy to partner with you. In fact, many of you, I, I, I know and you know how much, of, how much of an answer to prayer that you are, not just... Not just for us, but, but for lots of other churches and ministries across Canada and throughout the states that are, that are praying for us. And so a lot of you are, are the answers uh, to a lot of those prayers. And God is using you greatly, I know, to encourage me and the other pastors of our church. But, but also as church members, uh, you're encouraging one another. And so, uh, so we're thankful for you. Uh, By by way of reminder, before we dive into our text today, we we have been walking through a study the last couple of weeks that we're calling Miracles, uh, as you can see behind me, where we've been examining some of the miracles that we see found in the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John, it's one of the books in the Bible. It's located in what we call the New Testament, uh, and it's one of those books that tells us all about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And this book, uh, we call it the Gospel of John. It's written by a guy named John. Uh, That's why we we call it that. He's the author of that book. He's he's one of the disciples of Jesus. And he distinctly wrote down the teachings and the miracles that that we find in this book for a very distinct purpose. He tells us in John chapter 20, verses 31, that he does so, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's distinctly chosen these teachings of Jesus and these miracles of Jesus and put them together in a book that that may be the outcome of it. Or or as we read just before this, uh, Thomas, he he's talking to the risen Jesus and he looks at him and calls him my Lord and my God. And, And so this is that's John's great desire for you as you are walking through this book that you would come to believe like Thomas, that Jesus is your Lord and you're God, and really that is the greatest miracle that could ever possibly happen in your life. The greatest one that could ever happen. And so, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, man, who is Jesus and what he's all about? The book of John is a great place for you to study. In fact, if you know any Christians, it might be really good to, to read through maybe a, a chapter of the book of John and then call them up and say, hey, I didn't understand this. I need you to explain it to me. They would love that call. Also, they may not know all the answers, which is really great for them too, because uh, they can read it through and be like, "I don't know," and uh, so so that you can help them learn God's word better, uh, and 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 you can learn it as well. And if you are a Christian, it's a great place to be reminded of who Jesus is, as we've said a number of times through the series. It's a great place to anchor our faith as Christians, so that we may come to see that our greatest hope in life and in death is that we belong, body and soul, to Jesus. And so, like we've been exploring, John wrote this book, centered around a few select miracles that we come to understand who he is, and we come to believe upon him as our as our Lord and our God. And so, today, if you want to open your Bibles, we will be in John uh, chapter, or really big bold number eleven. Uh, and so, if you want to you want to turn there, either in your phone or uh, analog version, like I'm doing, uh, you can you can do that with us. Um typically uh, what we do is we have a lot of the verses on the screen, but today we're going to be going through the entire chapter of John chapter 11. So that would be so much scripture on the screen. So you're, I, I decided not to do that to you and to myself. Uh, so so if, if you have a Bible, it would be great to grab because uh, we're going to be using it a lot today. And so um, uh, let me also recognize as well, right out the gate, there's going to be things as we walk through this that I, I am going to want to pause and just... Just be like, isn't that awesome? Uh, and, and there's gonna be things that you're gonna want to go through, and you're be like, wait, 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 but that was awesome. And, and and we're not gonna be able to hit everything today. That'd be great if we could, but we'd be here for like nine hours uh, because John chapter eleven is just chock full of so many amazing things. It's kind of like spelunking into a diamond filled cave, and so we're gonna grab a couple of those diamonds and bring them up to the surface and say. Look at these diamonds, but, but we're going to leave a lot of diamonds down there, uh, which is good because what that will allow you to do is allow you to connect with a couple of people throughout the week and uh, whether it's in play dates or coffee dates or walks or dinners or various things and, and talk about John chapter 11 together. So uh, let's pray uh, and then we will dive into John chapter 11. So God, I, I pray that as we are opening your word, as we're walking into this room this afternoon, that you'd work a miracle in our hearts and lives. God, we know that every time that we come into Your Word and into gatherings like this, that we are either one of one, two things happen to us: either that we are hardened to the things of You, we leave places like this hating Your Word and hating who You are more, or or we leave softened. Our, our hearts are softened to the things of You, and we we love You more as a result of our time in Your Word. And so, I God, I, I pray for that ladder. I, I I pray that I pray that You would move in our hearts in this time. I pray that You would give us. Minds to comprehend and ears to hear. I, I I pray that we would we would have hearts that are soft. I pray that we would love you more as a result of being in your word. Help us, we pray, and we ask that in the mighty name, the, the powerful, strong name of Jesus, our God and Savior. Amen. Amen. So to navigate our time together today, uh, I'm gonna give, we're gonna kind of dissect what we're going to look in in john chapter 11 to five different scenes now if you're looking in your bible does your bible uh do kind of roughly this has little breaks in it with little chapter heading things that's basically what we're going to do today we're going to break it into these five scenes so firstly we're going to see jesus interacting with the disciples and the problem of lazarus's sickness and his death we're going to see that in the first 16 verses then we're going to see how Jesus interacts with Lazarus's sisters, these suffering women who are walking through um, all of this and the conversations they have around Lazarus's death. Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus's sorrow and anger, which is, a, I think, is going to be one of those surprising things as we walk through this. Fourthly, we're then going to see the miracle itself, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then lastly, we're going to see the reaction, what happens as a result of this in different people's Lives so that's where we're uh, that's where we're going. That's our coles notes. Uh, so so let's dive into uh, the first scene here and, and talk about Jesus and, and how they hear about Lazarus's sickness. Look with me in verse one of John chapter eleven. It says, "Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of, of of a town called Bethany, which is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill." Now, if you've, been, if, you've been, we're if you've been reading along the gospel of John, you have not read this story yet. John records it actually in John chapter 12. But it was such a well-known story that he, he mentions it just to remind us who this family is. Let's jump back in then verse three. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. No, we're, going to, we're going to pause there and meditate and camp out here. This is one of those diamonds that we were talking about. And we're going to pause there and, and examine this because a few moments ago we, we saw the direction of this chapter. And maybe maybe having heard the story before, you have a general sense that this miracle that we're talking about today revolves around a man who dies. right? And then he's raised from the dead. And, and yet... Jesus here seems to reassure the disciples in verse four that Lazarus' sickness would not lead to death. So, so what, do you, what do you do with that? Right, so, so this is the right question then to begin grappling with as we're reading through this text and trying to understand what is going on is what is death? What is it? What, what does Jesus mean by death? Because the word used here in the Greek, the original language that this was was written in, that word death here, it does mean a physical bodily death. But but is Jesus here simply referring to just a bodily death, or or is he talking about something more than just that? And and how does this this illness that Lazarus has, how does it not lead to whatever death is? How, How does this not lead to that? And, and, and how is all of this going to be for the glory of God the Father and the glory of Jesus anyway? And how is this good for these disciples and this family? And these are all going to be questions that we hopefully, I, I pray, will answer. I believe the text tells us them, but we need to start grappling with them. And it's good that we do so. And if you're ever reading through God's word and you come across things like this, you should stop and be like, what does this mean? That's, that's, that's a good and a godly thing to do. Let me pause here and say, though, isn't there something about this text already that reminds you of something we've discussed earlier in the Gospel of John? Doesn't this sound familiar? An illness that leads to the glory of God? An illness that is not brought about because of sin that will somehow lead to the glory of God? Like, I don't know if you were here last week or listening to our podcast, but that was Matt's entire sermon. And here we are again. And this is meant to be a bell that just gets bang hit again of like the same kind of a story. If you want to look with me real quick in John chapter 9, that's where Matt was last week, the healing of the man born blind. At the beginning of that chapter, Jesus asked, or sorry, his disciples asked Jesus if this man being born blind was caused by this man's sin somehow in utero, or if it was his blindness was caused by his parents' sin. Why, Why is this man born blind? They wrongly think that deformities and illnesses like this from birth are the consequences of sin. At least... That's what they've been taught. And Jesus was wrong. Do you remember? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, but he said that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse three, chapter nine, verse three. And we talked about how that man's blindness was providentially planned by God from before the foundations of the world. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. That that Jesus would be glorified. And we talked about the teachings of Jesus afterwards. Uh, If you remember that that there are those who can physically see, but spiritually they're blind. And there are those who are physically without sight and and yet spiritually can see. Matt talked about how how fascinating that is. And Jesus' great rebuke to the religious leaders is they thought they could see, but they're all blind. And so some of this conversation around death begins to make us wonder, especially with the connection with with John chapter 9, is there a way to physically be alive? Like you have a pulse and, and yet spiritually you're dead? Is there a way to be dead and yet spiritually alive? But that will come in a moment. But but in John chapter 9 and 11, we're just noticing they're, they're tied together with this strange sentence structure. There's an illness that will lead to the glory of God. No doubt John wants us to make that connection, and Jesus wants us to know, and so does John right from the very beginning, that this illness, this illness ultimately will not be fatal, but rather it will be for the glory of God the Father and the glory of God the Son as they share glory one from another. That's the intention of God over this entire sickness. And in thinking about that situation, and thinking about Lazarus's sickness that will lead to his physical death but not his ultimate death as we we think about the sickness that will lead there the we also think about the fear and the sadness and the mourning and the loss of the family don't we we might be tempted to think that maybe jesus doesn't love this family very much right if if he will ordain this kind of a thing for them to walk through i mean what kind of love lets people suffer and experience loss Our, our shallow 21st century understanding of love is kind of gets shattered when we read texts like this. But it's not only us. It's not only us in our culture. I, I, think, I think it's human nature to, to when, when things happen like this, you begin to wonder, does God even love me? Is God even happy with me? Because we so intertwine both our prosperity and our physical healing with God's love, don't we? And, and yet the Bible never does. Not, not once, in fact. See, none of this is due to a lack of love from God's behalf towards them. I mean, look at that Even verse four. It's, it's sandwiched between verses three and verse five, which is not just me as a public school kid recognizing that four comes in between three and five. Uh, but but uh, as you look at verse three, we see that Jesus, he does what? He loves Lazarus. And then what do we see in verse five? He also loves this family. It's not out of a lack of love. John wants to hammer that. Before and after, he tells us that the sickness will lead to the glory of God. Not only that, later on, Jesus will leap, will weep at Lazarus's tomb. And, and the Jews will talk amongst themselves about how much Jesus loved Lazarus. So, so it's not for a lack of love that God has ordained this sickness and this temporary death. No, while we may be tempted to believe that health and prosperity are signs of God's love for us, we ought to remember that we can be sure that God's love for us remains true because of the cross of Jesus. If you're ever wondering, does God love me? Don't look to your bank account. Don't look to your health. Don't look to any of those things. Look back to the cross of Jesus. It's definitive. He does. And come what may, you have that as the sign that God loves you. That's, that's where God's love is put on particular and peculiar display. And the fascinating thing that we're going to see as we walk through the story is that Lazarus' sickness and his resurrection from the dead It gets to play a massive role in God's big story of redemption. From from Lazarus' sickness until Jesus' is hanging on a cross dying is approximately a week. As Jesus heals Lazarus, the Jewish leaders will say, we need to murder this man. And they will. This This is the miracle that pushes the Jews over the edge. So when, when we read that this is for the glory of God so that God the Son might be glorified through it, we, we begin to understand what that means, the hour of his glory, standing condemned on a cross on our, in our place. So don't for a minute believe the lie that Jesus doesn't love Lazarus and his family, and that's why all this is happening to him, any more than you would read the book of Job and assume that God just might not, not love Job. <laughs> no, that's not it there either. And it's this love for this family which makes verse 6 seem all the more strange. Read it with me. It says verse 6. So when they heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. (laughs) And you might be wondering, Aaron, what in the world, man? I thought you just said Jesus loves his family. He loves them, but he lingers? You just said that he loves them. He could come to them and heal Lazarus. It doesn't seem like Jesus loves Lazarus very much. And isn't it just like that in our fallen nature to assume the worst about God when we don't comprehend what he's doing? And yet here, John kind of pulls the curtain a little back, bit back for us to see that Jesus' delay wasn't out of a lack of love. See, when we understand the timeline around all this, it begins to make more sense. If you want to look down in your Bibles with me to, to verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for how many days? Yell it out to me. How many days? Four. So he comes, Lazarus is dead. He waits two days more, which means the messenger came on day one, right? You following along following along with my public school math? Uh, yeah, all right. So, so Jesus stays, the, the messenger comes, Jesus stays two days longer and then makes the trip there to go to Bethany. Which has led pastors and theologians to understand that it took the messenger one day to get to Jesus. He waited two days and then he came to them. Right. Leading most to conclude that Lazarus must have died shortly after that messenger left on the first day. Right. If he's in the tomb for four days already, then then as soon as the messenger must have left, Lazarus must have died. And back then, they don't embalm people, especially the Jewish people. They don't embalm people. So decomposition occurs very quickly. Within a couple of hours, it begins, and it it does not slow down. It accelerates quite rapidly. So immediately, they would put them in the ground that day. So when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. D.A. Carson, a Canadian pastor, he explains on commenting on this text. He says, By supernatural means... By supernatural means, Lazarus had already died, presumably as soon as the messenger left, on that day one. Thus, Jesus' delay for two days did not bring about the death of Lazarus. But in thinking about that, you still might be wondering, well, why not immediately then go to Bethany on day two and raise Lazarus from the dead? Why not just go go on day two? Why, why, Why wait? Why wait? And we're not told why Jesus waited, but simply just that he did. It might be that his work was not done in this city. It might be that there were other miracles, that there were other sermons that God the Father had ordained for Jesus to do on those two days. More ministry in the city where Jesus was, as Jesus' days on the earth were wearing thin. Remember at this point, we're, we're like a week from Jesus being on the cross. And so maybe there were some very last things that God the Father wanted to do in this city where Jesus was. We don't know. But one thing that, that we do know is that he waited. We're not told why. But, but one interesting thing to know about this is that in Jesus' day, there's an old wives' tale that Jews had come to believe that when a, person's, uh, when a person died, their soul hovered over their body for the first three days after death. But when the, body, or when the soul saw that the body was decaying, the, the soul would depart. So after three days, it was impossible, they believed, for someone to be raised from the dead. So, some speculate that God the Father had Jesus wait for this extended period of time, these two days, so that nobody could complain or or claim that Lazarus wasn't really dead. You ever seen the Princess Bride? He's just mostly dead. And there you go. So I'm glad I'm glad you've seen that, Jay. That's a good movie. Uh, just kidding. I don't know. Talk to your, talk to your parents. Uh, but but it's a it's a movie. And in that movie, uh, he's, he's mostly dead. And so they want to make sure and they make sure he's not mostly dead, but all the way dead, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus, Jesus knows everyone knows this guy is dead. Uh, but then verse seven tells the disciples uh, he tells the disciples they're going to go to Gia again. And then verse eight, look with me. It says the disciples said to him, Rabbi. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go back to Judea again? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, the sun. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, usually over a pet or a Lego. (laughs) He says, because the light is not in him. It's an interesting turn of phrase there. See, the disciples don't need to be afraid of the Jews trying to stone Jesus. Jesus has work to do. And as we've already talked about, he's the light of the world. He's unkillable until the day that God the Father has appointed for him to die. And that day is not by getting stoned by the Jews, but rather being crucified. And so he's unkillable until the day where Jesus will lay down his own life of his own accord. Until then, he has work to do. So he looks at all these boys around him. that are like, but Jesus, we might die. He's like, buck up, guys. Let's get on with it. And, and I love that one of the th- great things that he does is being so gracious and kind to Lazarus' his family in the midst of one of the hardest days of their life. A family that he does love so dearly. So verse verse 11 says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up or awaken him. Which is a, a euphemism commonly not used in the Bible. Falling asleep is not normatively talking about someone dying and, and so the disciples don't understand what he's saying they, they say lord if he's fallen asleep he'll recover right you get a cold you get a flu you sleep a little bit and, and you kind of get better but but john clarifies this for us in verse 13 he says john jesus has spoken of his death but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep then jesus told them plainly lazarus has died and for your sake i'm glad i was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him And I love the way that verses 14 and 15 is structured. The structuring around sentences really fascinates me. We see Lazarus has died, and he says, for your sake, for the sake of the disciples, that is the reason why he is glad he was not there. It seems like a strange thing to say, but but he tells us that immediately. He's glad, not not because his friend Lazarus died, not because of the sorrow that this family was going through, but so that they may believe. And I think that when John penned this phrase here in verse 15, he had in mind the intention of him writing this book anyway. Remember we said at the beginning of our time together that John records all the miracles and the teachings of Jesus so that we would come to believe upon him. And we may have life in his name. So likewise, Jesus is glad that Lazarus has died because of what is about to happen. Raising him from the dead is something that will have never happened before, and will lead to their faith in him as they see it. Now, now Jesus has raised people from the dead before. Do you remember he, he raised the little girl up from the dead? And, and there, was, there was that young man who had died, and he was in the coffin on his way to being buried. Jesus did heal and raise those people from the dead. But John doesn't record those. All he does, though, is record this one. Because all those, though the miraculous, none of those people were dead for Four days. And this miracle would have such a profound impact on these disciples and on everyone who heard about it because this is the kind of thing that was impossible. The dead raised back to life. Only God can do that. And Jesus is glad because he wants them to see and believe things that they will not see and they will not believe were not for this. So they head out a day's journey and they come to this grieving family. And then as they do, Thomas speaks up and he says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And, and I love that Joan records this because if you've been around in Christianity or studying the Bible for a while, what is the nickname that Thomas has? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. He gets such a bad rap. This poor guy. Can you imagine just doubting? you get to have it. He's like, come on, man. I'm not just this one-dimensional figure. I'm, I'm a robust character. Uh, and, and here, I, I love this. So he gets that name Doubting Thomas because he wasn't there when Jesus first arose from the dead and appeared to the disciples. He came later, but he, he wasn't there. So he said, I, unless I see with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus did come later, and that's where we have that amazing profession from Thomas, that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And I love here that we have this this recorded, that he is the one to encourage his fellow disciples to go with Jesus, they may die with him. Thomas is ready to lay down his life to following Jesus. Fascinating, isn't it? Because as we know, in a couple of days from now, Thomas is going to do what? Flee. He's gonna leave Jesus alone and abandon him along with all the other apostles, all the other disciples of Jesus. They're going to run and hide out of fear of losing their own lives. And Thomas, here though, is faithful and dependable. And amazingly, after Jesus did rise from the dead and Thomas had that profession of faith, my Lord, and my God. The beautiful thing about Thomas is that eventually he did lay down his life. And he did die for the sake of Jesus. He would not quit talking about what he had seen and what he had heard. And because of that, they murdered him. So I, I love that this is... This is in there, in here, because it, although it's, it's not yet true of Thomas, he's going to have a little moment of wavering, it, it will be true of him. And Christians throughout the generations have encouraged themselves to take up their cross daily and follow Christ at great cost to themselves by reading words like this uttered from the mouth of Thomas. Starting in verse 17, we get to uh, the second scene. And it's here, starting verse 17, where, where we see that Jesus interacts with Lazarus' sisters. Verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. It's interesting that it tells us that many Jews had come, leading most to believe that Lazarus and his family was a pretty prominent family in Jerusalem. Bethany's just under two miles away uh from from Jerusalem and, and so many people would have have come and would have paid their respects and to mourn alongside of this family verse 20 so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming she went and met him but Mary remained in the house and Martha said to Jesus when she got to him she said lord if you would have been here my brother would not have died and I, I, I love this phrase here because what it does is it opens up, uh, get a little glimpse into the sadness of this woman. If you think about it, this is a thought that she probably had many times in the last four days. Think about it, her brother died, they sinned for Jesus, Jesus doesn't come that day, the next day, the next day, and he finally comes, and, and her response in which she finally sees him is, if you would have been here, maybe things would have gone differently. But Jesus wasn't there, and her brother died. Not only that, but we don't see any mention of her parents here, which also lets us know that Lazarus was probably their sole provider and their protector as a family. He was more than likely taking care of his sisters. We don't see any husbands mentioned anywhere in Scripture, which then compounds the sadness of Martha. And this next phrase that she says is an interesting one. Look with me at verse 22. Martha says, but even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And and I say it's interesting because Martha recognizes this peculiar relationship that Jesus has with God the Father. God listens to Jesus' prayers. He has this unique power when he prays and God listens and things happen. But we shouldn't take this as any, any hint on her mind that maybe Jesus was going to pray and raise Lazarus from the dead. That is the furthest thing from her mind at this point. What her mind is just racing on constantly over and over and over again is, if Jesus had been here, my brother would be alive. If he had been here, my brother would have been alive. I know I've seen you pray. I've seen God move as a response to your prayers. I know if you had been here, he'd be alive. This, This is just her sadness. In response to this, verse 23, Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again. But Martha doesn't understand. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, she, she knew that the resurrection was coming one day at the end of time when all of God's people will be resurrected from the dead. Maybe she thought Jesus is just simply assuring her of a future coming day. You ever walk through a time of mourning and loss and sadness and religious people show up and they don't want to mourn with you or cry with you or weep with you. They just want to say, don't worry, one day in the future things will be better. You ever just want to punch those people in that moment? <laughs> But that's not what Jesus is doing here. This is not what Jesus meant when he told Martha that her brother would rise again. So he responds in verse 25. Look at me in this words. It's so good. He said, no, no, no. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And let's pause there for a moment because what Jesus actually says here in Greek, that, that language that the Bible is written in is really important. Jesus begins by using this distinct phrase we talked about two weeks ago. If you remember, it's this phrase, ego, a me. So literally, he, the first thing that he says to her is, I am, I am, which is the exact same phrase that God spoke to Moses in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 3. This is the covenant name of God. And Jesus here employs it to comfort her, but also to let her know he is not simply a man that God listens to. He's not simply a man who has a particular power when he prays. No, he is the God who created her and everything that existed. He is the great I am, the only true and living God. And hearing this upon the lips of Jesus claiming to be the I am would have been earth shattering for our friend Martha. Not only that, but he also says he is the resurrection and the life. Which means that he is the one who holds the keys to life and death themselves. He is sovereign over life and death. And they bend to accomplish all of his purposes and plans. He's not some religious teacher. He simply teaches about the resurrection. He is the resurrection. The very power of God unto life. So when Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again. He doesn't mean some future. He means no, no, no. no. Now he's going to rise again this day. He doesn't press that home just yet. And then Jesus has this beautiful phrase. He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, though there is physical death, yet he shall live. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, the Bible presents three things that are a little crazy. Three things that are a little little wild. Firstly, that we can be physically alive. That that we can have this, this pulse that a doctor can find and chart. But we can be spiritually dead in our sins, headed towards an eternity of facing God's just judgment against our many sins. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. Secondly, that we can be alive physically and alive spiritually. Which is John's great hope for us, right? That we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing that we would have life in his name. Spiritual life, that we'd be given faith to trust and believe in Jesus and experience eternal life here and now. It's the the yes, but not yet of Jesus's kingdom. As R.C. Sproul explains, once a person believes in Christ, the life of Christ is poured into the soul of that person and that life is eternal. Everyone who is in Christ has already begun to experience eternal life. So that we may go through the physical transition of death. But that death cannot destroy the life that Christ has given to us. So you be physically alive and spiritually dead, physically alive and spiritually alive, or thirdly, you can be physically dead and yet spiritually alive. And here's where Jesus makes this beautiful promise that whoever lives in him, though he dies a physical death, there's a kind of living that can never, ever, ever be taken away. Not ever. This is also why, as we talked about last week in our pastor's Q&A after our gathering, that it's so important that God is referred to as the God of the living, not the dead, right? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's the God of the living, not of the dead. These men, though physically dead, are at home with the Lord. So, so Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. No, that, that does not mean that they won't experience physical death. We, we were talking about this uh, at my house a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. There are some Christians that believe oh, as long as you uh, have, have faith in Jesus, you'll just never die. You'll just live forever, never, 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 never. That, that is not what Jesus means. He doesn't mean just physically you will never, ever die. He means spiritually you will never, ever die. You will never face God's just judgment against your many sins. That's what he's talking about. That's the death that Jesus is referring to. That's why Lazarus never experiences that kind of death. He never experiences spiritual death. Though his body died, he doesn't experience that. And now it kind of becomes a little bit more clear, doesn't it? That that Jesus has secured, dear Christian, Jesus has secured your salvation you will never, ever, ever face one ounce of God's just judgment against your many sins because Jesus has paid it for you. you you'll never experience spiritual death. Praise God. And so, so Jesus explains that to, to Martha and he, he looks at her. I love this. He looks at her and he says, do you believe this? <laughs> Let's just consider everything that Jesus just told her. He's asking, do you believe I'm the great I am, the covenant God of Israel, the only true and living God? Do you believe I am equal with God the Father? Do you believe that I am sovereign over life and death? Do you believe that I give eternal life? It belongs to me, life that is never-ending and abundant and can never be taken to you, and that life and death belong to me, and I wield them how I wish. Do you believe that I give eternal life, life that is never ending and abundant, can never be taken away from you? Even when this physical life ends, there is a life to come found only in me. He looks at her and he says, do you believe this? She said to him, verse 27, yes. Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. And her statement of belief here is astounding, isn't it? It's the exact hope of John that we would see the miracles of Jesus and hear the teaching of Jesus and come to this exact same conclusion. Martha is held up here as an example for us to follow. It says, look at her faith. Follow it and imitate it. Remember John 20, and 31? These things have been written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does she say? I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Ha! Huh. And by believing, she now has a life in his name. And so in seeing the response of this woman, the question inevitably turns to us, do you believe this? Have you trusted upon Jesus yourself? Is he your God and your savior? immediately after this confession, verse 28 tells us that when she had seen this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, teacher, is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb and weep there. Very common practice. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Isn't it shocking that both of these sisters come to Jesus and say the exact same thing? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her, verse 33, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And those words right there move us into the beginning of our next scene. And these phrases here, they're really interesting. They, they mean much more than Jesus is simply visibly upset or troubled. Like maybe Jesus is just crying or just moved to sympathy. Like, like you see one of those commercials on TV and you start weeping. Maybe it's just the dads in the room. <clears throat> but, but this is not what this means. No, the imagery here in the Greek, the original language here is is that Jesus is experiencing such immense and great anger at this moment that he literally has a visceral response, a snarl, a distinct angry noise issues forth from him. This is the same word used elsewhere of a a horse, a really angry horse that snarls when it's upset, or, or an angry junkyard dog that snarls when it's upset. This is the same imagery of Jesus here. This snarl issues forth from him. His great anger issues this forth. So you might be wondering, why, why is Jesus so angry? There are many guesses as to why, but I tend to agree with R.C. Sproul again. He writes, personally, I think that which caused the anger of the Son of God to boil up and overflow in his spirit was that he was in the presence of, of the ravaging destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind. Death. This was his enemy. This was the foe that in only a few days, he was going to confront head on in the throes of agony as he would experience death on the cross, dying to conquer death itself. And so seeing the the ravaging destruction of death on these people that he loved so dearly, and thinking of his own death in a few short days, Jesus has this righteous anger that just issues forth. And this is the kind of righteous anger as well that, that we feel, isn't it? When people that we love walk through various sicknesses, when you leave that hospital room and, and out of your mouth comes, I hate childhood, childhood cancer. Out of your mouth comes, I hate MS. I hate Parkinson's. I hate this thing. these things that ravage our bodies and the bodies of those that we love. It's good and it's right and it's holy to hate these things. And it's good and right to see God also hates these things. It's good and right to know that. Sometimes we might be tempted to think maybe God doesn't hate these things. We may be wonder: does God have any anger at all towards the effects of sin upon us as his people? We forget the great links that God has gone to bring salvation to the world. And yet right here in John 11, this is a great reminder to our suffering hearts when we walk through sufferings of various kinds here on the earth. Our suffering does not go unnoticed by our God. Friend, that will preserve your heart in the midst of many dark nights of the soul. And isn't it so beautiful that Jesus chose to knowingly walk into this affliction and mourning and weeping of these dear friends, people that he loved, and to see that he's also moved by this death? Brother and sister, don't, do, do you wonder if God is moved by the mourning and sadness in your life? Look to Jesus. See how he enters into the affliction of his people. He does not chastise them for their weeping and mourning though he joins them in it. Note here as well that the most holy emotion to this kind of ravaging death is anger. As we'll see in a moment, it's an appropriate response in time like this is to weep. And I I don't know why this is the case, but oftentimes aren't we tempted to think that religious people should be the most docile and even-keeled people in the midst of great things like this? That, That we should be the kind of people when walking through great sadness that we should be rather stoic, reminding ourselves of our future hope in God and, and that that's the idea of, of a great holy person. It's like how unmoved they are by the things in this world. But no, see Jesus, the most godly man ever, ever, <laughs> God with us, demonstrating just visceral anger at such ravaging disease and loss. Friends, see that God is affected by these things. He's not unaffected by them. It's here where Jesus says in verse 34, he looks at them and he says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So Jews said, see how he loved him. Again, a reminder of his love for Lazarus. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I mean, what a heartbreaking question, isn't that? In the midst of such suffering, Jesus visibly upset, snarling, weeping, and a question comes like this. We, we ought to readily acknowledge, though, that the answer to this question is yes. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death, but he didn't. He didn't. So that the glory of God might be revealed. So that the disciples might believe and that his disciples' faith, not to mention the faith of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and millions of others who have walked through and read this story, that we might all be strengthened and come to trust and believe in Jesus. This brings us to the fourth scene Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, Uh, again that word, snorting with anger, he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifts out of his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've, that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. There it is goes Again. That they may believe. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. i want to pause here again for a moment because Jesus' command to Lazarus, his body, is something Lazarus can't do. <laughs> and at the point, he can't do it. I did some research this past week on what happens to a body in the first 72 hours of death. And it's gruesome to say the least. I'm going to spare you most of the details. If you're curious, I'll let you Google it later. But uh, don't have eaten anything right beforehand. But the short of it is that the smell that the ladies reference here, the one that would have filled the air the moment that the stone was rolled away, it's there because internal organs and in the muscles of the, bo- of the body have begun to deteriorate and decompose without blood supply. And the gases inside of the human bodies begin to make the most unbearable stench. They weren't lying when they said there would be an odor. Or as the King James Version says, he stinketh. (laughs) He would have. He would have stinketh. Stinketh? I don't know if you can pass sense that. But it would have been an odor. Not only that, but every ounce of blood has moved into the lower parts of your body. There's been no blood circulating in your veins. and, And because of that, all of your muscles begin to deteriorate and they die. Not only that, but the brain has gone without oxygen for four days. It is completely dead. And it's begun to decomposing as well. And many other gruesome details are there for the curious. But needless to say, Jesus commands Lazarus to do something that he physically cannot do. His body is decomposed to the point where even if resuscitated, even if you could shock him back to life, he could not move. His brain has not made neural pathways in four days. His muscles would not bear the weight of his body. I don't know how you get the blood from the pool of his back in, in the bottom of his legs back into his veins again. That, that's impossible. They, they didn't have the medical capacities to understand all that we know today about these things, but they did know that it was impossible. It's like speaking to dry bones and calling them back to life. It's impossible unless you're God, right? He's the one who holds the keys to life and death. So in this moment, at the sound of the voice that created the heavens and the earth and every living thing that moves and breathes upon the earth, at the sound of Jesus' voice, Lazarus' decomposing body, which which Jesus had formed in his mother's womb, was immediately restored to the picture of perfect health. Even the sickness that had ravaged his body and led him to his death was gone. See, we call this the resurrection of Lazarus. It was much more than just he was brought back from the dead. This was a complete and total restoration of this man. No trace of that illness. No trace of decomposition. And at Jesus's voice, his brain was made well. His heart started beating. Blood pulled back into his veins, and immediately his muscles were perfectly restored and able to move. All of this happening in an instant voice of Jesus. Lazarus was resurrected and restored as he was called forth by Jesus. See, if anyone else other than Jesus had done this, it would not have happened. As Augustine so famously said, give what you command and command what you will. So Jesus commanded Lazarus to do what only Jesus could give him the grace and the power to actually be able to do. And he came forth. Look how verse 44 explains it. It says, the man who had died... He came out and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. I <laughs> think about this that, this week as if it wasn't difficult enough for poor Lazarus to get up and to move. His hands and feet are bound and he can't see anything. Isn't that wild? And yet his body somehow at the command of Jesus is just like, okay, like it just goes. Like, can you imagine how crazy it would have been for Lazarus? He's just standing there all of a sudden. He doesn't know what's happening and he's just standing somewhere. He's just standing there. Nobody had ever seen a miracle like this. Can you imagine all the other people, they see him just walk out like, what is happening? Who has the power to do these kinds of things? Jesus must be the I am. He must have authority over life and death. And then I love this. Jesus looks at those around him, probably to Martha and Mary, and he says, unbind him and let him go. (laughs) Isn't that wild? The more that I thought about that this week, it made me more and more in awe of Jesus. I mean, imagine this is you. Jesus has just now come and brought back someone that you love from the dead. And he looks at you and you are in complete amazement. And he just looks at you, probably a little smile and just says, go let him free. He invites you to run up to this person that you lost, that you thought was gone for forever. And he allows you to run up to them and to take off that thing off their head and to see their face. And I imagine Lazarus is just sitting there smiling. Like, what else would he be doing? Maybe in amazement, I don't know. But, but in seeing your face and, and, and then the hearing everything that had, had gone on and transpired, I can imagine just immediately after that, there's tears of joy. There's tears of sadness. There's, there's them unwrapping him. Then later that night, can you imagine dinner table later that night? They're just sitting there looking at him like, you're alive! Like, they just keep touching him, right? Like, I can't believe you're alive. The next morning, they wake up, and they're like, was it a dream? They run into his room, and they're like, no, he's alive. All of this would have definitely gone on to be reminded all over again of Jesus' deep love and his deep care for this family, to know that Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. There's no one like him. He is the Christ, Son of God. And we should rightly be astounded at this, that Jesus has the power and the ability to bring people back from the dead from physical death, but also from spiritual death. See, it's no wonder that Christians read this story and immediately what is brought to mind is our own spiritual life. For we know from reading God's word that we too were once dead in our sins, unable to please God as we ought, and we were born from birth and by nature as rebels against God. It's not like we got corrupted somewhere along the way by a wrong crowd, but rather we found the wrong crowd. And they affirmed whatever it is that we wanted them to affirm. We were physically alive, but spiritually we were dead. And in essence, we were all guilty of the same sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. We wanted to be like God, deciding for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And we were all dead in our sins, deserving nothing but the wrath of God against our many sins for all of eternity. But God intervened. He sent people into our lives to share with us the good news of Jesus and people to help us understand the Bible in various ways. And we were called to come and to follow Jesus, the great shepherd. We heard his voice calling out to us. And we were given faith by God the Spirit to believe that we are sinners and deserve nothing before God except judgment. But also that Jesus had come and stood condemned in our place. And that if we came and we confessed our sins and repented and believed upon Jesus, that God would be faithful and just to forgive us of our many sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We who could never deserve it, who were dead, were called to life. God called us to himself and saved us. By grace, we have been saved. He called us out of death into eternal life, undoing the effects of decay and decomposition and giving us brand new hearts. He justified us and brought us into his family. There's an, there's an old hymn that says it this way. It says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And friend, if you have not repented of your sin and turned and believed upon Jesus and you hear him tenderly calling you today, don't delay any longer. He will be merciful to you and forgive you and cleanse you and give you eternal life. This can be your story just as it is mine. Trust me, if God can save somebody like me, you are easy. And this miracle of Jesus is not simply astounding it, it, it's, it's glorious and it's inviting us. But let's look real quick just at the, at the responses that we see. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Isn't that a great thing? That's John's hope. Friend, may that be you today, that you would, you, would, you would have this right response. Verse 46, it says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53. So that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Isn't it wonderful here that Caiaphas spoke better than he knew? It was entirely better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Therefore, 54, verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he saved the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country of Jerusalem for the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. And all of this harkens back to John chapter 11, verse five, doesn't it? That this illness, this death of Lazarus would not lead to, to eventual death but rather it would lead to Jesus' experience of peculiar glory and his death in our place. That's why it's better for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha that Lazarus walked through all of this. It's good that Lazarus would get sick and die and be raised from the dead because this miracle immediately led to the oncoming death of Jesus within that week's time. As a direct result of this miracle, Jesus would be crucified in our place. Suffering the wrath of God the Father that we ought to pay. And he would die so that we might live. He would experience the Father's wrath so that we may only experience eternal life. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus here exchanges places with Lazarus? Lazarus was in the tomb. He called him out so that he may enter into it. See, this, my friends, is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. Jesus that Jesus has come, that he may stand condemned in our place, that we might have forgiveness of our many sins. So to that end today, you're invited as well to come and to believe, to receive new life, forgiveness of sins, and join him in his kingdom. Do you believe? And will you come today and receive Jesus as your God, King, and Savior? You are invited to come and to receive new life. Forgiveness of sins to join him in his kingdom that you may not suffer God's righteous wrath against your many sins. And you, dear brother and sister, isn't it good to pause and reflect and remember the kindness of God as he extends to us that we were once dead in our sins, yet he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace and through faith in Jesus alone, you have been raised from spiritual death. And one of the most beautiful things that a church has the great opportunity of doing is as we see men and women come to believe upon Jesus, as we see them go from death to life, as we see God move in their lives and save them, Jesus looks at us and says, go, unbind them, welcome them in. See, this is what local churches have the great joy and responsibility and wonder of doing we get to join in this ministry of welcoming people into god's family that as they are brought from death to life we get to say hey you're now alive let me teach you the things of god it, it, We get the great joy of walking alongside of you in life and that that for me personally is one of my favorite things to see absolute favorite things to see and it's such a privilege isn't it that god would share that with us he doesn't need to Jesus could have walked over and unbound Lazarus all by himself and said, voila, he didn't. He allows us to see him save people in our own families, our friends, people that we know, our co-workers. And then we get the great joy and privilege of discipling them, helping them grow in their love and knowledge of Jesus. And so I I praise God uh, for that over this last year as a local church. I praise God this past year that he's brought men and women from death to life. And I look forward to decades of ministry together in this city, in this country, in this world. If God would give us so we can make much of Jesus together in this life. Let's pray.